John chapter 5, verses 19 to 24. 19 to 24, the Father loves the Son. Actually, we will read verses 19 to 30 because this section is focused on the judgment that the Father has given to the Son. The judgment of God that the Father has given to the Son and how they are one nature and one purpose. They are one nature that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God in nature. But the three, especially here in our context, the Father and the Son have one purpose, and that is to judge the world. 5, 19 to 30 is what we'll read. 5, 19. Jesus, therefore, answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice, and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this word of Christ. Thank you that it is true, it is reliable, it is faithful, it is trustworthy. And Lord, we put, pray that we will put our full confidence in the word of God found here in scripture. Now, as we meditate on what Christ says, we pray, Lord, that we will have the mind of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, that we might believe everything he says, not dismissing anything, not considering it the words of men, not thinking that we are wise in our own sight, shrewd, we are able to understand the world and ourselves better than Christ. We pray, Father, that you will bring humility to each of us, subdue our proud hearts, and cause us, Lord, 
with contrition and humility to tremble at your word. Especially as we consider from this passage your nature, your true nature, and your purpose in creating the world and redeeming the world. Give us, Father, more insight into this, and may we believe it. We ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. In this chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 to 18, Christ has gone to a festival in Jerusalem, and he has on purpose, intentionally, healed a man, a lame man who was in his ailment for 38 years. He healed him miraculously on the Sabbath day. We know, since Christ does not do things by accident, that this was purposely, intentionally done on the Sabbath day. He did it on the Sabbath day, and to the disdain, to the wrong and evil, sinful reaction of his adversaries, the Jews, and in this case, most likely the Jewish leaders, the Jewish authorities, they object to it when they understand and see that he healed a lame man who had been in his lameness, in his ailment, for 38 years. We see that their reaction was one of persecution. We saw, as it says in verse 16, 516, and for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, they want to persecute him. And this persecution is now twofold. Not only because in their own eyes he transgressed the Sabbath commandment, based on their traditions, based on human traditions, they think Jesus transgressed the Sabbath commandment. But also, verse 17, Jesus justifies his behavior on the Sabbath in this way, in verse 17, he answered them, he answered his opponents, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. My father is working until now, And he, therefore, by that unique phrase, my father, he displayed and declared to his opponents that he has a unique relationship to God the Father, a relationship that his enemies did not have, a relationship also, we saw, that even the saints, even fellow believers, we do not have with the Father. And that's because by this expression, my father, Jesus was indicating his divine nature, that he possessed deity equal with the Father, which two objections John the Apostle summarizes in verse 18. For this cause, or for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This is the dilemma now we have. This is the conflict and the controversy we have. On the basis of healing a man on purpose on the Sabbath day, and on the basis of claiming my father, claiming deity for himself, the Jews want to persecute Christ to death. This is where we pick it up in verse 19. Because we see in verse 19... Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, not saying to the healed man, not saying to the man who was lame and now healthy, but saying to his adversaries who want to kill him. Jesus, we see, 
approaches or answers them, was saying to them the following words, verses 19 until the end of the chapter. From verses 19 to the end of the chapter, these words are addressed to them, his foes, to them, his enemies, addressed to them. And in summary, what does he do in 19 to 47 at the end, the last half of this chapter? He, in summary, unites himself with God the Father. He also declares that he is the righteous judge on the day of judgment. And then finally, in verses 31 to 47, he testifies that on several bases, for various reasons, they have ample testimony, they have plenty of evidence, they have plenty of knowledge to know that they will be held accountable on the basis of the things that they deliberately are rejecting. That Jesus will be the righteous judge because they deliberately, obstinately, are rejecting all the truth, all the evidence presented before them. This is what Jesus does to answer them. I'd like to notice that if this is the way Jesus answered them, what did we say about what Jesus did on purpose on the Sabbath day? He healed a man, a lame man on the Sabbath day, not by accident, but intentionally on the Sabbath day. We hear these days how we need to be like Christ, right? And sometimes we say, what would Jesus do? And oftentimes what people do is they use Jesus as an example, but as a false example, as a false model, as a way to excuse sin, to excuse their own sin, and also to excuse the sin of others, to excuse the fact that they will not stand for truth. They will not call out what is wrong and evil when they see it. People do so, do they not? But in verses 1 to 18, Jesus purposely knew that if he healed on the Sabbath day, he would have some opponents, some of the religious officials against him. He would have them against him for doing so. He knew that, but he did it anyways because it didn't matter. He wasn't seeking to please men. He was seeking to expose the sinfulness of man, not to smother it and sweep it under the rug. So he did it on purpose. Then we see, beginning at verse 19, that Jesus does not let up. Jesus does not say, oh, well, you know, I, I did say, make some uh, extreme comments. Let me mitigate my comments. Let me soften my tone. Let me back off. Let's just sit down and have a good meal together. Let's go someplace and, and you know, cool, uh, let our steam cool off. He doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't do anything like that. What does Jesus do beginning in verse 19? He turns up the heat. They are opposed to him and he knows it, but he turns up the heat. He, he definitely is turning up the heat and claiming and, and insisting and explaining in verses 19 and following that he is one with the Father in deity. Well, they wanted to kill him because he claimed deity. Then that they would be judged by Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, would that not also offend these religious officials? Certainly. And then for him to say, ample evidence has been presented to you by John, John the Baptist, 
by the miracles, by God the Father, and by the testimony of Scripture, particularly Moses, that in these ways you have ample evidence and you still, in the face of everything that's real and true and obvious, right there before your very eyes, you have the audacity to walk away from it, to reject it. He is turning up the heat with them. So when we ask the question, what would Jesus do? Shall we be this way? Shall we seek the truth as the occasion requires? Not shrink away, not be ashamed of Christ, but speak the word of Christ. Furthermore, verse 19, he emphasizes that what he is saying, which is typical here in the book of John, verse 19, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, it would be enough to the average believer if Jesus said, I say to you, or simply to say it without saying, I say to you. But he emphasizes what he's about to say with two truly trulys, or amen, amen, which means truly. That's one usage or sense of the word, amen, truly, I agree with it. And here he's saying, before he says it, he's emphasizing that what he's about to say is very true, very true, without any impurity, without any mixture of truth and falsehood, it is true. So if I claim what I'm saying is true, now it's on your lap and you have to deal with it as such. You have to acknowledge that it's true, as true as I'm saying it, and believe it. And if you don't receive it into your lap, receive it and nourish it and care for it in your bosom, if you don't do this with the truth, then the guilt is on you. He says, truly, truly, in order to bring or to their awareness, to heighten the awareness to them that they better pay attention to what is being said. He says in 19, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. The son can do nothing of himself. When he says this, what he means is not that he is bound up as a puppet or that he is some lesser creature or some uh, inferior subordinate to the father. He does not mean the son can do nothing of himself, meaning that he is anything like that. He is saying in human terms, um, theologians say in anthropomorphic terms, for a human form like the way that we would express things to make us understand since we are humans and we're not divine, if God were to say it in other terms, we would not understand it. We would not comprehend it. So when he says the son can do nothing, and when he says unless it is something he sees the father doing, we already know from John 4, 24, the father and the son and the spirit do not have physical eyes. They don't have physical ears. They don't have physical hands or feet because God is spirit. So using an analogy, he's saying, by saying the son can do nothing unless it's something he sees the father doing, what he means is that the son and the father in their being, in their essence, in their substance, as deity, as divine, they are in complete natural or uh, uh, substance harmony and also harmony of purpose. He's saying it is impossible for I, the Son, to do something to, uh, contrary to the Father, or even the Father to do something contrary to the Son. 
because we are of one essence, because I have deity just like the Father, and he's saying, because my purpose and the Father's purpose are one and the same. They cannot be contradicted. There's nothing better in the Father or better in the Son. There is no disharmony whatsoever. This is what he means when he says, the Son can do nothing of himself. They are working together, both because of who they are and what their purpose is. Who they are and their purpose, it is one and the same. Now, this doesn't mean that the Father is the Son or that the Son is the Father. We are speaking of their nature being divine and their purpose being one and the same. The reason for that clarification There are false teachers such as Oneness Pentecostalism, also known as Jesus Only, and sometimes they call their churches apostolic churches. Um, They they claim that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's clearly not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that, that He is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is saying that the Father and the Son have the same nature and the Father and the Son have the same purpose. Not that they are one and the same individual or same person. That's not the case at all. Further, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. The basis or the reason for him saying that they have one nature and one purpose in verse 19, for the Father loves the Son. How is it that the Father would have this special, unique love for the Son? A special and unique love for the Son that He does not have for you and me. How is it? And also how is it that the Father loves the Son in terms of the Son's work in the world, which is also special and unique and distinguished from the things that you and I do. Certainly, the the Father loves us in Christ in a certain way, in certain ways in our redemption. But here, he's not speaking of that. He's speaking specifically of this relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, if the Father loves the Son in a unique way, in a special way that is distinct and different from the way that the Father loves us, which is obvious, correct? Is it not the Father who sent the Son to be the Savior of the world? Correct? And is it not the Father who raised Jesus up from the dead immortally? Is it not the Father who places Jesus at His right hand to reign and rule until He makes all His enemies a footstool for His feet? Is it not the Father who has given the day of judgment, handed it all over to the Son? Correct? We could go on and on about the ways in which the Father uniquely loves the Son. But why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say the Father loves the Son? Because if His enemies claim to know the Father, if they claim to know God, but they don't love the Son just as the Father loves the Son, then their claim is an empty claim. Their their boast in saying, well, we know God, you don't know God, Christ, but we know God, then their boast in knowing God is a false boast. It's empty. It's conceited. It's false, right? It cannot be true that they love God. Because if 
The Father loves the Son. Well, why don't they love the Son? If the Father loves the Son, why will they not believe in what He's saying and doing? That's the implication of the Father loves the Son. And whatever the Father does, the Son does, which is reiteration, a reiteration of verse 17. My Father is working until now, and I myself am working, which is what He explains in 19 and 20. Whatever the Father wills for me to do, I do it. My purpose, my mind, my will is one with the Father, is the point he makes. And if that is the case, why don't you love me? Why don't you? Can you imagine if you were a Jew in the time of Christ hearing these words? Because they prided themselves in being knowledgeable. They prided themselves in being wise. They prided themselves in being sophisticated. They prided themselves with uh, the flattery and the praise of men, correct? And their influence, they had power, they had money, they had the ability to make decisions that impacted the whole nation. The Sanhedrin did, right? And Nicodemus was a part of that Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. So they prided themselves in all these things, yet they didn't love Christ. So if they were so knowledgeable and they had so much truth in their hands um, at the tip of their fingers, all they needed to do was to turn the pages of the Old Testament. If they had all this but did not love Christ and they're going to hell, can you imagine if the Jews are going to hell for not believing in Christ, how about the Muslim? How about the Buddhist? How about the atheist, the agnostic? How about the Hindu? How about the communist? How about all of them? What's going to happen to them? They don't love the sun. They claim to love the sun, but they don't really love the sun in some ways, such as Mohammedans, Muslims will say, oh yeah, yeah, we respect Jesus and he was a prophet of God and so forth. They say that, they give lip service to it, but they don't really believe. And even some Jews do the same. And some Hindus do that, and Buddhists do that, and even some atheists do that. But actually, if they don't believe exactly what Jesus says, then they don't have God on their side. They don't truly believe in God, and God is displeased with them and will judge them for being liars. If they don't love the Son, they do not love the Father. Because the only way... To know God the Father is through the Son of God. Is that not what Jesus said? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ said these words, so they're either true or they are false. Is he the only way to know the Father? John the Apostle, he reiterates this point. John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, 22. 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, 
the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. He calls people liars in verse 22 who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Certainly Jews deny that. Unbelieving Jews deny that. Certainly Mohammedans deny that. Certainly even atheists, communists, they deny this because the Christ is the one anticipated in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. This is who the Christ is. So many people deny that Jesus is the Christ in the proper meaning of the word Christ. And not only are they liars, but they are antichrists. They're not only liars, but they are antichrists. Though they may say, no, no, we're not against Christ. But John says they are against Christ. If they don't believe what's true about Christ, then they are against Christ. Is that not what Christ said? He said in Matthew 12, 30, he who is not for me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Matthew 12, 30. That's what John's saying here too. That if you're not on the side of Christ in the true sense, you're actually against Christ, whether you admit it or not. Because when you are against Christ, it's more dangerous than we realize. Because it says, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Right? If the Father loves the Son, you can't reject the Son, hate the Son, and claim to be with the Father, to know the Father. Because in verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The Father doesn't love you if you deny His Son. The Father does not redeem you if you deny His Son. The Father will not be pleased with you on the day of judgment if you deny His Son. However, if you confess the Son as the true Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you have the Father also, which is Jesus' point in John chapter 5. And also in 1 John, 1 John 5, 1 John 5, in loving the Son and in believing in Him, 1 John 5, we begin at verse 9. 1 John 5, 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. Don't we typically receive or believe the witness of men? We do that on a day-to-day basis. We also do it in the courtroom. We have to receive, we have to assemble, we have to examine the testimony or the witness of witnesses in the courtroom. Correct? Otherwise, judges and societies cannot function. We must do so. Well, if that is done there in the courtroom and in day-to-day life, well, what about when God, God the Father, witnesses, testifies concerning His own Son? Why do we do that with one another, but we won't do it when God speaks? And if we don't do it when God speaks, 
then we make God a liar. 1 John 5.10 has made him a liar. May it never be that God calls us liar. May it never be. Let's be on the side of Christ, therefore on the side of God the Father, and may he say to us, well done, good and faithful slave. May he never call us liars. So the nature and purpose of the Father and the Son are bound up together, and we must love the Son for who he really is and why he came into the world to redeem us from our sins. If we do so, we are on the side of truth and not lies. Further, first, uh, John, John chapter 5, John 5, verse 20. John 5, verse 20. Remember, the occasion for this conflict is healing on the Sabbath, which was a great work that Jesus did. Right? He healed the lame man who had been lame for 38 years. And many people would have known that. But now he says in verse 20, And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Yes, it is amazing. It is marvelous. It is stunning. It would have been a spectacle for us to have witnessed it at the time it occurred. For us to see that a lame man who was on his pallet for 38 years, if we were in the crowd and we were to see that, it would have amazed us. We would have marveled. And it would have been a great thing that someone who was in misery for 38 years suddenly has happiness, suddenly has joy, suddenly can walk and skip about and even run, right? That would have been amazing. But Christ is saying that there are greater works than these that he... Uh, that the Father will show the Son, greater works that the Father will show the Son, and its purpose is for us to marvel. What would those be? I believe those would be the things that Jesus would do consistently during the remainder of his incarnation, his earthly life, to perform miraculous deeds, to heal others even to calm the sea, to do things like that, miraculous deeds like that, but also the amazing and the miraculous crucifixion, burial, and resurrection that they would experience and be able to touch with their own hands and see with their own eyes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what John explains in John chapters 20 to 21. He explains it. And John isn't the only one who explains this amazing and miraculous, marvelous resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul. Paul. And this was also prophesied by Daniel the prophet, by Isaiah the prophet, and by Moses the prophet, by David the prophet. It was prophesied for hundreds and thousands of years beforehand, before it actually occurred. That means we have the testimony of all of these men of God, the prophets and the apostles. And if we have the testimony inside of Scripture, why don't we believe it and marvel that God raised Christ from the dead? We should marvel and believe once we are amazed at what God did. Furthermore, we have testimony outside the Bible to marvel because 
There is testimony among Jews and Romans about many of the incidents and especially the core incidents that happened here in the scripture. They testify to some of these things. And Josephus, an unbelieving Jewish writer of AD 90, even said that he knew that the Christians claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. And when he described Jesus' miracles, which he didn't deny, he only described them, but did not deny them. He said, if it be lawful to call him a man. He said, there was a man. And he says, if it be lawful to call him a man. Meaning, he was most likely more than a man. According to an unbelieving Jewish historian, Josephus, A.D. 90, in his book called The Antiquities of the Jews, he records these words. So, it is for our, us to marvel about the life and ministry of Christ. Also, though, what does he begin to do in verses 21 to 47? He begins to speak of the day of judgment and that everything is assigned to Christ, that there is a day of judgment. On that day of judgment, inevitably, inescapably, both believers and especially unbelievers will marvel and have to declare to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Lord. Is that not what it says in Philippians 2, 9 to 11? That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen with every individual on the day of judgment. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous, for He has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. This is the kind of praise and adoration that will take place on the day of judgment. Yes, everyone will marvel. Unbelievers such as Philippians 2, 9 to 11, but even believers and angels in Revelation 19, 1 to 6. Further, verse 21, John 5, 21. He explains some more. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. He explains here 
another ministry or another function, another good work, marvelous work of both the Father and the Son. Both the Father and the Son in unison give life to the dead. And they give life to whom they wish or to whom he wishes. Verse 21. Here, the cooperation, the unity of the work of the Father and the Son. When we read from verses 21 to 29, 21 to 29, we have a sort of ambiguous interchange of giving life to the dead. And I believe it's, I said ambiguous, but really what it is is two kinds of resurrection in these statements. There is the spiritual resurrection of us being dead in trespasses and sins, but there's also the physical resurrection that will take place yet future. This kind of interchange or and going back and forth that seems ambiguous at first reading is what we also find in Romans 6. Romans 6 is the same as what Jesus is saying here, that God the Father and Jesus our Lord, the Son of God, they both have power to give life to spiritually dead people. Ephesians 2.1 You were dead in your trespasses and sins. They have this ability to miraculously change the hard, stubborn, evil, depraved human heart that has no impulse and no desire for God to convert it, to circumcise it, to open it, to give it life, to soften it, to make it tender so that it desires God and loves God and receives eternal life. It is both the Father and the Son who do this in order to convert people. In this case, he is emphasizing his own role. Christ is emphasizing his own role, not that he has dismissed the role of the Spirit, because he's already spoken of the role of the Spirit in John 3, John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If we are born of the Spirit, we will have life. John 6, 63 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. 6.63. So then, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they give life to the dead. They raise the dead. The Father, Son, and Spirit. Raise the spiritually dead people. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit also raise the physically dead people. They also raise the physically dead people. For example, in Galatians 1, verse 1, speaking of the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, Galatians 1, 1, he mentions... God the Father who raised him, raised Christ, from the dead. Galatians 1.1, God the Father raised Christ from the dead. Furthermore, we see in John chapter 2, John chapter 2, that Jesus raises people from the dead. In fact, he raises his own body from the dead. John chapter 2 John 2, 
19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, which temple does Jesus mean? The Jews therefore said, verse 20, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was saying about his own body, I will raise it up in three days. You will kill it, you will destroy it, but in three days I will raise up my own body from the dead. They thought he was talking about the physical temple building. And John the Apostle clarifies, no, no, Jesus meant his own body. That's what he will raise from the dead. So will he and will God the Father, Son, and Spirit raise us up also from the dead? Okay, let's look at one example of Jesus giving life to whom he wishes and then giving spiritual life to whom he wishes and then physical life to whom he wishes. Look at the first one, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, 21. To 22. Luke 10, 21 to 22. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, now this is Christ who's rejoicing greatly in the Holy Spirit. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. There were some people who objected. There were some people who didn't believe. But Christ is not anxious about it. Verse 21, instead, in the Holy Spirit, he rejoices greatly and he praises God the Father for this circumstance. And he praises him as Lord of heaven and earth who hides things, God hides things from the earthly and worldly wise and intelligent people. But then he reveals these truths of God to infants or babes to those little ones, meaning to his people, the elect. He reveals things to them. And God the Father does this as it is well-pleasing in his sight. The Father does this to people. And not only does the Father do it, but he has, in verse 22, he has given all authority to the Son, and no one is able to know the Father, and no one is able to know the Son, except, it says in 22, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So who ultimately, according to verse 22, who ultimately is giving salvation to people and withholding salvation from people? It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because He says there, He has the the will to reveal the Father to people. And if the Son wills to reveal the Father to people, then people will understand who God the Father is and believe in Him. But if He withholds that, 
keeps that away from them, they won't understand God the Father. Then, on the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our own bodily resurrection. Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, verse 9. 9 to 11. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Here now, the apostle combines both our spiritual resurrection and our physical resurrection by saying that if the Spirit of Christ is in us, then we will be raised spiritually and also raised physically. Raised spiritually in verse 10, raised physically in verse 11. All on the basis of the work, the harmony of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John 5. John 5, and now verse 22. John 5, 22. We may ask the question, well, why is this the case? Why is this the case? Jesus teaches us from verses 22 to 24. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. In 22, the reason given is the Father does not judge anyone. By that he means the Father does not independently, solely judge anyone. In fact, he has allocated the judgment, the personal judgment, specifically in the face of someone, and that someone is his own Son, the Son of God. This is what he means. He doesn't mean that God the Father doesn't judge people. He's only meaning that God the Father chooses to judge people in the personal presence, in the face of Christ. That means we have to do with Christ. Even though the Father is invisible, and the Son is invisible as deity, but the Son, as the Son of Man, as he says in verse 27, God gave the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. In the face of Christ, all judgment is given. This is what the Apostle says in Acts 17. Acts 17, he says this to the Athenians, the Greeks, the Greek philosophers, and those who who were amused and intrigued by pagan philosophies, Paul says this in verse 31, Acts 17, 31. He has fixed a day, that is God. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness 
through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There we have more specificity on the the fact that the reason the Father judges no one has to do with the visible Son of Man being there, demonstrable on the day of judgment for everyone throughout the world to know and see And the proof of all this to all men, meaning Jews and Greeks, everyone, is by raising Jesus up from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead as a testimony, as evidence that everything Jesus said and everything the prophets and the apostles said about Christ will be true and everyone must be ready for the day of judgment. God has appointed him and God has prepared or fixed that day. There is a fixed day of judgment and there is an appointed judge, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, why did he do so? John 5, 23 adds another reason. In order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That who sent him is a key phrase. We have spoken of this as we cross-referenced 1 John chapter 2, chapters 2 and 5. God has orchestrated all of this. God has ordained all of this. God has appointed all of these events in relation to his son in order to make sure the purpose in order that all may honor the son even as they honor the father. Is that not the problem? Is that not the basic problem that we have? That people think that they worship God, the Father. They worship the true God. They worship the ultimate God in the proper way. However, they disdain His Son. They don't honor His Son. We speak of of, of this throughout the world. The world does this throughout the world and the world's religions and philosophies. They want to claim that they have access to God, the true God, the ultimate God, the God who is the creator and the redeemer, and even the God who is the judge of all the earth, yet all of these philosophies and religions, they refuse to honor the Son of God. And God is going to reverse all that. If people are unwilling to do it now, He will ensure it happens on that day of judgment so that everyone gives due honor to the Son as deity and with one purpose, with the Father. This is what his intention is. The Father's intention is this, with the Son. We haven't spoken of cults yet today, but cults in one way or another, whether it's Mormons, Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and any number of other cults, they do not honor the Son because they don't believe in his person. They don't believe in his nature. They don't believe in his deity, his divine nature. They don't believe in that. They reject it. (coughs) Not only that, but they reject the purpose of him dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So his person and his work, they reject the true meaning, true purpose of his person and his work, and yet at the same time, they claim to honor the Son of God. They claim to believe in the Son of God. They can't do that. It's not 
The two together. The two together would be impossible, mutually exclusive. You cannot mix mix um, oil and fire and water and all together and say it's all going to be happy if we mix it all together. It's not possible. There's going to be an explosion. And this is what people attempt to do. They don't honor the Son as He truly is, biblically speaking, in His person and nature, and they don't honor Him in His purpose. But if we don't do that, we don't have the Father. And finally, verse 4. There is a way out of judgment. There is a, a way out of condemnation. And this also he emphasizes by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, Truly, truly, I say to you, yes, we must explain the peril to come. We do have to explain the day of judgment, the condemnation that awaits unrepentant sinners. However, we also have to hold out the hope of redemption, the hope of salvation, the hope of mercy, the hope of receiving this grace, receiving this love, true love, as defined in the Bible. And what is that way? How is it that we can escape the in, impending punishment? He who hears my word, he who hears my word. So first, we must hear the word of Christ. We cannot attempt to explain the gospel to people without the word of Christ. They have to hear the word of Christ. Romans ten seventeen. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We must explain and preach and teach the word of Christ. It's necessary to hear his word. And in fact, if we are ashamed of his words, there's peril for us. Mark 8, Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. If we have shame for the word of Christ, Christ will be ashamed of us when he returns. So that's one of the prerequisites. We must hear the word of Christ because that's the only way we will have faith, true faith. Notice, it's not his words plus Emotions. It's not his words plus entertainment. It's not his words plus programs and activities. It's not his words plus anything else that humans invent and even churches invent to appeal to men. It must be his word. Next, he says, it's not enough to hear it. We must believe and believes him who sent me. We must also believe it. It's not enough just to be hearers of the word. We must be doers of the word. And the first doing that we do is obeying when he says to believe. Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's necessary to believe. To believe means we have to also understand how good it is that Christ came to die for sinners. We have to believe in that. We have to believe in the goodness of God. We have to believe in the grace of God. We have to believe that when He holds out hope for us, 
that he is telling the truth. That though we are in our miserable condition, there is a way to escape the misery. Even though we are alienated from God, there is a way to be reconciled to God. Even though we are slaves of sin, there's a way to be freed from our sins and to be enslaved to Christ, which is far better. Right? We have to have that hope. We have to have that possibility that there is deliverance for us in our current state. That's what faith does. Faith also believes in the providence of God, the goodness of God, in order to overcome our current misery. Now, who is it that we must believe? We must believe the Father through the Son. He says, believes him who sent me. Remember how often, and the book of John emphasizes this point again and again and again, that the Father sent the Son, and the Son's words, the Son's ideas, the Son's actions, everything is in harmony with the Father. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So He is the supreme, the faithful messenger of God. Christ is. In fact, Hebrews 3.1 says, He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is an apostle sent by the Father into the world for us. Let's believe everything Jesus says, then we are believing God. If we don't believe anything Jesus says, then we don't believe the Father. The result has eternal life. Eternal life. Not eternal death, but eternal life. If we think, if we are thinking soberly, if we are thinking soberly, logically, we want eternal life. Nobody wants to suffer torment, punishment forever and ever. Anybody who is using his senses, who has common sense, who's using his wit, who is being rational and logical, he will not want eternal fire, eternal punishment, eternal torment. We know this because only a maniac, only an insane man, or perhaps uh, a man who is so lost in his drunkenness would walk into fire. Correct? or maybe a a demon-possessed man might do that too, only those kinds of people might walk straight into fire. Are we that, that way? Are we that way? No, we shouldn't be that way. We should want this eternal life. This is the good, this is the benefit, this is the hope he puts out there before us. Use our sanity, use our sobriety to embrace, to believe in that which is good for us. Don't run into the fire. In fact, get out of the fire or the potential of it and snatch others away from the fire. Jude 23, snatching them out of the fire. That's the urgency that we should have with this. Well then also, not only do we have this good reward or good benefit that awaits us, but it is a possession now. He does not say, he who believes him who sent me will have eternal life, though that is true in a sense. But he's saying it's a present possession. We can know right now, 
that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus right now. Having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Right now, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. We don't have judgment or condemnation, Romans 8.1. And that's the same here. We have eternal life and we will not come into judgment or we will not come into condemnation. We will not experience that condemnation of God, which is now also. So right now, though we are in misery, right now we can have hope that we are reconciled. We have peace with God. He's not going to be that harsh and severe judge to us on the day of judgment. Perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 16, 17. Perfect love. When we have this perfect love in our heart, we are not afraid. We don't have that fear because we have passed out of death into life. It's currently here for us now. Now, this is important not only for our daily living and thinking and to have peace of mind, which is very valuable. But it's also for us to preach and teach to others to have the same. Even those within Christianity. Because some within Christianity, they think there is no way to know. There is no assurance. There is no surety and certainty right now that if we're to die right now, we would be in the presence of Christ. In fact, most Christian denominations reject this truth. Catholics, Orthodox, Lutheran, Methodists, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, Charismatics, on and on, many of them do not believe that if we truly believe in Christ right now and we were to die today, we would stand in the presence of Christ and be with Him forever. They don't believe that. They don't believe you can have certainty or assurance that that is the case. Because they think at any moment or upon committing certain egregious sins, then you are lost and you may be lost forever. You cannot have any confidence, no peace of mind. But that's not the word here. He says, has eternal life and does not come into judgment or condemnation. But what has happened? What transaction has happened? But has passed out of death into life. So the spiritual death, we've passed out of it. So if we are passing out of this spiritual death right now, we won't experience it in the future, so there will be no second death. We will be raised on the day of resurrection to a resurrection of life. We have passed out of death into life. So now we are believers. Now we have eternal life. And now we have no more fear, no more thought of being thrown into the lake of fire because we have passed out of that now and into life. Shall we preach this? Let's first believe it and then preach this to others. This is who our Christ is. The Father loves the Son this way. Let's also love the Son this way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.